Hey everyone, this is Aaron Maslansky, the host of Inside the Skev. I want to just introduce this next episode. I interview T.M. Garrett, who is a former neo-Nazi, and he has become a peace activist. It's an incredibly interesting story, and it's inspiring. And I interviewed him in uh, live in person at the Industrious Coworking Space, um, where I co-hosted an event with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So it's a very interesting conversation, and please um, listen and hear how uh, this man had changed and, and it, listen to how a human has the capacity to change. This conversation was also recorded uh, with video, so it's also online at skevinson.com. So if you want to watch it, please feel free, but um, take a listen. All right, everyone, thank you so much for coming tonight uh, to this event. And uh, my name's Aaron Maslansky. I host a podcast called Inside the Skev, where I interview a lot of people in Skokie and Evanston. And recently, I had the pleasure to interview uh, Allison Pure Sloven from the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And she told me about this event with TM. And I am so grateful to have the opportunity to interview TM Garrett uh, tonight. And I want to thank a few people before we start. Um, first of all, obviously, I want to thank the Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, which is an international Jewish human rights um, organization. They fight anti-Semitism, racism, and hate. And a lot of their big part of their mission is to educate. So for instance, tonight is an event where we have an opportunity to speak with TM Garrett, who is a former neo-Nazi who has become a peace activist, which is such an amazing story and I can't wait to hear. Um, I also want to thank Industrious Coworking Space for uh, allowing us to use their space here tonight. And it's a great space to work if you want information. There's information on the table. I'm happy to help you with that as well to tell you more about it. And I also want to thank uh, Few Spirits. They are a liquor uh, distillery here in Evanston. I've had them on my show. And they donated uh, some whiskey here tonight, which is delicious, so please enjoy. And um, with that, I want to uh, start uh, talking with TM. So TM, you, are, you, you have an amazing story, you've, and we're going to hear about it tonight, where you came from a, a background where you were a former neo-Nazi, you become a peace activist. But you know, when we talk about that, and with the audience here tonight, I imagine that can be somewhat scary for people to hear. Um, and, uh, you know, and y y I don't know how many people here have met somebody who has a background like you. Um, but I think it's a rare opportunity for us to be able to get to know your story and to be able to uh, learn about how that happens and, and how um, everyone can make change. So um, thank you. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, everybody, for coming out and wanting to listen to my story. And yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you grew up. How did, you know, where did your life start and as a child and whatnot? Well, born and raised in Germany. That's where the funny accent comes from. <laughs> so my apologies for that. Um, I wasn't raised in a hateful environment at all. No? It was my, my parents had nothing to do with anything that was racist or anti-Semitic. Um, but it was a dysfunctional family. So my parents came both from different parts of Germany and moved into a small town of 500 in southern Germany. The only Catholics in the town are full of Protestants, 
first problem. Second problem, they had an alcohol problem, drinking problem. The third problem, they divorced. So my mom was the only single mother at the time. Uh, fourth problem, a different dialect. So everything, the strangers, the new ones, full of problems that, that caused a lot of problems. They were the outcast. And a lot of families even told their kids not to play with us kids. Do you have a lot of siblings, siblings too? I've got three siblings. They're older than I, eight, 11, and 13 years older. So there's more a cluster. So they could stick together more. I was unwanted. I was actually, I hadn't been a divorce or during the divorce. Oh boy. And my mom didn't know what to do with me at all. <clears throat> but I had no idea she, that she was fighting her demons, that she was drinking. <clears throat> she hid it very well. And I thought something is wrong with me. And um, so, again, I thought something is wrong with me. Yeah. And I tried to fit in. I didn't have any role models because there was no father figure. My brother, he moved out. He went to college when I was six. My older sister moved out. She got married when I was six, left with my mother and only my old other sister, who's 13 years older. So her music influenced me. A lot of rock music, English language music, but it was a hollow message. I didn't understand it at the time. And I felt like other kids had an identity. Like when I was a Boy Scout, a couple others were into church. One family was big in the army. Then I was into sports. I didn't have any of that. Did and you have interaction with your father? A little bit, but he died when, when I was eight. So I don't rem remember much. And I just tried to fit in. I just tried to find myself in the world. I, feel, I felt unwanted. Yeah. I uh, wanted to be valued. I wanted to have a purpose, an identity. And then at the age of nine, I had a meningitis infection, left the right half of my face paralyzed. So I was that weird kid with that family full of problems in these over-the-top clothes because my mother tried to get me through school and just tried to provide over-the-top good. Yeah. The most support was missing, though. Yeah. And that led to an environment where I was bullied. So you were bullied quite a bit. And how did you, how did you deal with being bullied? Well, I guess like a, any other child. <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, no child likes to be bullied. And I, I did, actually, I did not know how to deal with it. It was, it makes you feel ashamed. You feel guilty for, for you don't know what. It's just you think something is wrong with you. And that's why, why, you're, why you're bullied. And I went through elementary school, middle school, high school. And then I got presented with something that would bring me the attention that I craved for. Uh, happened actually in history class. We started learning about World War II, the Nazis, Third Reich, and the Holocaust. And we found out, especially in Germany at the time, the worst thing you can do is pick the Holocaust and make jokes about it. Can and you go to jail over that? Um, you can't. There's, there's really hard um, hate crime laws. But that was the late 80s. It wasn't really enforced that much because the government was not aware that it's a real problem. And the school handled it with, yeah, it's, it's kids, they're 13, and it will go away. And for the most kids, it, it went away. Yeah. Um, for me, it didn't. And, and it was also we made fun about Hitler, too. So it was anything that had to do with the time was a taboo. It was too serious. And um, again, the other kids went back to normal. The problem was I didn't have a normal to go back to. So I kept running with those jokes longer until I got labeled as a Nazi. And the thing is, and I they became not jokes at that point. Right. So 
But I didn't know what Nazis were. I mean, we learned it. The war was over in 45, and the Nazis were actually gone. Right. And I was like, I can't be a Nazi. I'm making fun of Hitler, too. So how, how does this work? Nobody took the time to sit down with me and talk about it. It was just a label. Okay, you're a Nazi. And I didn't understand at first. But it had a side effect that I did like. All of a sudden, I was somebody. I had an identity. Were people scared of you? Uh, yes, definitely. I, first, I thought it's respect, but I think it was more likely fear. Yeah. But I had all the attention that I wanted, and everybody wanted to see, okay, oh, that's a kid with the Nazi jokes. Well, I, all the other kids went back to the normal, so they want to see what's going on. Until um, another kid at the school gave me a cassette tape with uh, far-right extremist music. They were also singing about all this stuff about they're proud to be Germans and people call them Nazis, but they're not. I was like, hold on, that's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. First time somebody understands me, not even without knowing me. Wow, and it was like rock music, just like my sister's music, the only thing that ever influenced me, and I was hooked. The problem was with every cassette tape I got from the time on, the music got more hateful, more radical, and radicalized me. So I... All of a sudden, it was skinhead music, and I was looking for groups of skinheads. I wanted to join them. Were you writing music like that, too? Later, yes. Yeah. But that was at the age of 15, so I joined a group of skinheads. And first, it was only about uh, the subculture and using all these Nazi symbols and everything to provoke. It was not really an ideological background at that time. That came a little bit later, two years later, when I joined um, a far-right neo-Nazi party. And then it, 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 when it became an ideology. How old were you when you joined that? 17. Wow. And nobody ever came up to you and said, hey, this, this is you know, wrong or... You know, oh, yes. They, yes. They, People they, came they, up and said, this is wrong. But if, let's say, if you're married... And your wife tells you all the time, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You're most likely to shut down <laughs> and become defensive, right? Of course, yes. You're not, you're not changing your mind if she's not wanting to listen what's going on. Why do you do what you do? Right. And that's exactly what happened. So nobody really sat down and listened. Okay, what's going on in your life? It was just, oh, that's wrong. You're wrong. And it's so bad. Nazis are bad. And immigrants are good. And that, that was the only message. Yeah. But nobody wanted to listen. Did you ever have like a school social worker or somebody ever talk to you? No. Um, looking back, there was one teacher who was actually really concerned. And uh, it was my English teacher. And he also was the religion teacher. And he came back. It's funny, actually, from Israel every year with, with slides. <laughs> and uh, back then, it was the most boring part of school. When, because he showed his Israel slides, and I didn't like it um, back then. But now, um, looking back... I realized how much he meant to me and he tried to reach out a couple of times. I just didn't see it at the time. So I actually reached out to the teacher a couple of years ago and thanked him and told him about that. He really appreciated that. Never and I wish, I wish I would have appreciated his Israel efforts more, but that was contrary to what I was talking about at that time. Right, at that point in your life. Yeah. But when you start talking about the hate, I mean, did you hate... All different groups of people. I mean, was yeah. it just Jews, or was it just everybody, everybody who was different? Area. Everybody who was actually not German, yeah, or who was um, everybody who was not straight, everybody who was disabled, everybody with a different ethnicity, everybody with a different belief system. 
Did you ever act on that violently? Well, we had at, at the time when I joined the Skinheads, there were some like street fights with a couple other gangs. Yeah. But later, when it became more ideolo ideological, I decided it's the wrong way because several reasons. I didn't want to go to prison. Um, I wouldn't be good for the cause in prison. And I was convinced we can't con reach our goals with violence. Right. And so you're, you're 17 when you started in this. And then I imagine as you got older, you got more ingrained in it. You talk about how mm -hmm. you're, you started to write music in it. What, how did things develop as you got older with that? Well, I was about the age of 19. I was so deep into that ideologically that I started, started to write music and lyrics about that and started making music as a neo-Nazi singer and songwriter. You know, and I liked all the sister, uh, music that my sister listened to, and I wanted to play the guitar when I was a kid. Nobody would let me because my mom just, she just didn't get it. She was so busy fighting her demons, you know, being right. drinking and everything. And all of a sudden, I had an audience. I had people listening. Somebody wanted to listen. I felt valued. It felt great at the time. You had the attention sudden, that you Yeah, bring. all of a sudden, I was somebody, and I could be on the stage, and people were listening to my message and to my music. And... Um, so then, just felt right at the time. As you got into that, though, I mean, were you a leader in the groups, or did you not start? Yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Um, but starting um, writing music, people would start looking up to you, which felt great too. Of course, you feel even more valuable. You're somebody. Yeah. And then I started a series of of Nazi skinhead bands and toured over Europe, and so I was climbing up the ladders in that movement, and. Um, I'd say late 90s, uh, when a lot of internet websites popped up and chat rooms that gave me all of a sudden the opportunity for, to two things. Number one, to get in touch with other right-wing extremists and Nazis worldwide in chat rooms, and also access to banned literature. Again, Germany has really, really good and hard hate crime laws and hate speech laws. So therefore, a lot of that literature is forbidden and banned. You can't go just buy it but all of a sudden that was there online and with one mouse click you could download it all the stuff that you didn't know before and those people i was talking to all of a sudden <clears throat> from other countries like the usa canada <clears throat> argentina great britain australia everywhere it looked like oh they're all like-minded they have the same problem with immigrants and with black people and with their government and why is that? And they told me, well, we've got an explanation. You need to download a certain book. Which book was that? The, uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And which I know now, which is a, um, a propaganda piece made in Russia in 1903 by mm -hmm. Russian anti-Zionists to discredit and, uh, Jews and, and stir hate. But a lot of people picked it up even back then. Henry Ford spread it in the USA really widely. And those people told me, Read it. It's the blueprint, and it explains who the real enemy is. It's not just the government. It's not just the immigrants. It's not the black people. They're all just like, they're just being used, and the real enemy is the Jew. They want to take over the world. That, that, that's the ones promoting race mixing to create that unstable race they can control better to dumb them down. Uh, they control the media. Just look at Hollywood, all the Hollywood actors, and everything is Jewish, and they control the banks and the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. And that was the only thing I was reading. And those people convinced me that there's this supervillain mm -hmm. we have to fight to, you know? 
And I felt like a knight who's just defending your your people. Yeah. And and we thought it's the right thing to do. And um, I felt like I found the, the holy grail. Like that you was felt like solution. you were doing something right. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was like again a superhero fighting a supervillain. Which kid doesn't want to do that? Oh my god. So th- so then you you started to really get into it. You started reading the protocols of the elders of Zion. Mm-hmm. Where did that lead you to next? Well, to the conclusion that there's that overpowerful enemy that is behind everything. So this is what we have to fight. And all of a sudden, it made sense. Oh, that's why Hitler hated the Jews. Ah. Okay, and then I got into other literature too. I became a Holocaust denier. Mm-hmm. When I was a teenager, when I made those jokes, I didn't doubt that it happened. Otherwise, the jokes wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. And I recognized the Nazis were the bad guys. I remember one teacher asking me, why are you a Nazi? Don't you know they're bad? I said, yeah, that's kind of the point. Otherwise, I couldn't, I couldn't be the bad kid. Um, later, that, that turned around. Like, no, the Nazis were the good guys. And the Holocaust never happened, and the Jews just invented that to press money out of, of, out of the white race and to, to get Israel, and makes it easier to take over the world. And this is how that changed, and for a couple of years, I was really, I became actually a full-blown anti-Semite at the time. Did you start to admire Hitler at that point, even though you didn't at first? At first, yes. At the time, because I felt like, oh, he got it. This is why they did it. Yeah. This is, but at the same time, just getting rid of the Jews, but not murdering them, because we still wanted to look like the good guys. So the good guys can't kill six million people. My God. So this is this is how those people tick, you know, uh, find, finding an explanation or excuse and p- p- pulling things out of context. And we'll get to that in a minute with my next step, what I did then. Yeah. Um, because it happened there too. Well, your next step, I mean, as you got bigger, you started to incorporate other groups into Germany, right? Or was that yes a step no. after? That was um, about a year later. Um, I got introduced to somebody. Actually, it was a group of people that followed me around when I was um, playing gigs. <clears throat> and I knew one of them, at least, was a Klansman. He was a member of the KKK in Germany. I knew in early 90s, he flew actually here to Chicago. And came back as a Klansman with another guy. And that was a, like an open secret. But nobody thought they'd do anything. It's just, okay, they came back with a membership and that's it. And they followed me around. And I realized that's a cluster of Klansmen. That's a clan group. Um, I had no idea that a clan really existed in Germany. Uh, later I learned they existed since 1920. So a German-American so- pastor brought it to Germany. And the ironic part is Hitler banned the clan. Really? Why did he ban the Because clans? it's a secret society. Yeah. So he banned the Freemasons, secret society, so he also banned the clan. And died, died again, then GIs brought it back in the 60s, died again, and then the skinheads brought it back in the 1980s. And that was one of the groups, so four or five active clan groups at that time in Germany. One of them followed me around, and uh, one time at a barbecue, one of the guys asked me if I want to join the clan. And I hadn't even thought about that because I thought, okay, they're super exclusive and you have to apply and prove that you're Aryan or whatever. And he's just asking me. And that felt good. So exclusive and valuable. You know, they want me. I don't have to ask them. You were being recruited. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I joined them. And um, 
one of the problems I had there, it was a new ideology. Um, the clan claims to be Christian. And you have to understand what kind of dilemma I had. Um, the German far right of German Nazis and racists, they tick a little bit different from the American Nazis. How so? Um, American racists justify their hatred very often in the Bible. Germans don't do that. The reason is, and the former friend I had back then, he said something very interesting. Christianity is Judaism for non-Jews. Interesting. Let it sink in a second, you'll think, that's right. That's exactly what it is. And back then it made sense too, but it also meant, okay, you cannot be an anti-Semite and a Christian at the same time. Doesn't work. And I thought, hold on, but the clan claims to be Christian, and what about the guy on the cross? Right. Wasn't he Jewish? <laughs> Can turn it upside down, whatever. He was Jewish. And so I had questions. How does this work? And racism in the Bible? Like, like German Nazis usually say, Christianity is like a weak religion begging on the knees versus the Nordic religion with the strong Vikings. I said, so, so that doesn't, that doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense. No, no, the, it's there in the Bible. I said, where? I said, yeah, you have to ask these and these people. I don't know exactly. So it took a while to find the right people who pointed out. And there was a lot of things that didn't make sense. Even at that time, I didn't buy it. Where it wasn't actually in the Bible, but they were trying no, to No, there's a couple excuses. of quotes uh, um, that, that you could lead to the conclusion. Yeah. Um, but I, I had so many doubts. At that time, I rose up the ladder again and became the leader of a European clan group. What was and your title? The European White Knights of the Kutlux Clan. And I didn't want to teach my members something that, I, that I'm not 100% convinced in. That I know that it's the right, the right deal. So I thought, okay, what about those famous translation errors? You have 20,000 Bible translations. Every, every Bible translation says something different, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, Hebrew. No vowels, and there's a lot of room for interpretation, and some of the words mean 10 different things, depending on the context too. Sure. So I thought, there's probably translation errors there. Let's find them. And again, the internet gave me a lot of tools to find them. There were translation tools that you could click on Bible links and translate from Hebrew to English, from Greek to English, like the New Testament. And of course, I picked the translation that fit me best, and, <laughs> and that was proving my agenda. So I did exactly the same thing. I pulled it out of context and used the wrong translation at the time just to justify my hatred. I did exactly the same thing. And when you justified your hatred like that, you were able to then uh, educate the other members of the group. I tried on, to. I yeah. tried to. But that didn't work well. It turned out as a, an ideology here in the U.S. It's called Christian identity that believes in uh, the theory that white people in Europe are the descendants of the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. They didn't disappear. They came over the Caucasian Mountains into Europe. That's why Caucasian. Oh, makes sense, right? And that... <laughs> Two tribes of the, um, of the kingdom of Judah, they went into the Babylonian exile, and the new rulers put strangers there, so they got mixed up. They lost their bloodline to God. Well, the ten tribes didn't. So therefore, the ten tribes, white people, are the chosen people, and the Jews are not anymore, because they got mixed up. They lost the bloodline to God. Oh, makes perfect sense to me <laughs> at that time. And I tried to teach that to my members. 
But again, the German racist Nazis take differently. I had a very hard time to sell that idea. It didn't really work out. So that clashed. That clashed really, really bad. And um, due to the fact that the German authorities, again, they have very strict hate crime laws, they put the finger on that and tried to work against them really good, which means um, they knocked at my door often with search warrants, confiscating computers, just checking if we do something wrong, whatever. They ever arrest you? <clears throat> no, I, 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 had, I ran into problems with the law. I didn't get arrested. Yeah. But they tried, of course, to, to um, convict me for things. But we were careful enough, for the most part, to go around the laws. Yeah. Either use different other words or just didn't say what we thought or just... Try to be careful. Just try to be careful. We even had lawyers and, and sent lyrics to the lawyers and said, please look over it if there's anything illegal. And we would use words that everybody knows what we mean, but we just didn't say it. And the lawyers would then tell us if it's okay or not, so we don't, wouldn't get in, in trouble with the, with the law. Did you sell a lot of records for what oh, you yes, wrote? Yes, yes. Tens of thousands worldwide. And were you on the radio with this too at that time? Not the mainstream radio. There were... Like podcasts and, and radio stations in the far right back yeah. then already online. Uh, I ran one of those in Germany and it was played there. Yeah. And there was a black market that, that sold it. And there was a lot of people buying that stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's, it's still out there. Still and out and there. even some of my stuff is still out there and there's nothing I can do because it's a black market. Right. Try to sue those people. But it's a black market, so right, there's no right. way to get it back. Exactly. And, and it makes me a target too. So it's, it's, it's dicey. It's, yeah, yeah. So being in the clan group and, again, trying to sell that idea that clashed. And also, I had a lot of doubts. Again, otherwise, I wouldn't have dug into those translations. And all people in groups like that have doubts. Somebody who's in for years, somebody who's in for 50 years. Even if they look so radical that you would think they don't. But everybody does. The problem is you don't talk to anybody about your doubts. Because you live in your bubble. Do you ever actually... In all this time, did you ever meet a Jew? Or did you meet other people in these groups that you hated? Well, being in Germany, there's not a lot of Jews, unfortunately. Right. So I never had the opportunity. And at some point, I didn't even want to. Um, black people, as at the time, were not many either. And there were a lot of Turkish Muslims. And that was one of the main, that was the main enemy for some time. But for that reason, there were a lot of Turkish street gangs. When we were skinheads, the street gangs, of course, it clashed. Sure. And we just projected their behavior on everybody. Well, of course, the parents were not like that. The grandparents were not like that. They were just nice people. But we didn't want to see that. We didn't see it. We didn't socialize with them. Yeah. We saw them as the enemy. They want to infiltrate this country. They want to invade it. They want to take over. Yeah. So, so what actually happened then? So you said you had doubts. When did you start to change? When did you realize well, that this wasn't first? For the you? first thing I did is when uh, the police knocked at the door again, like the 100th time, and told me that they're watching us. And I felt so secure. Nothing can happen to me. We're careful. But they made me aware of the fact that if one of my members commits a violent crime, that is still my head on the plate. And the thing is, I never wanted to go to prison. So out of fear, paired with the infighting and all these doubts and all of that, I retired. Hmm. I thought, I have to get away from that situation. At least Is that common for people to retire? Yeah, 
it's it's uh, just just not go there anymore. Just say, oh, it's it's too hot right now. I can't do that. So I picked up the phone. I should have disbanded the group, but I thought it's the right thing just to retire and appoint a successor. That's yeah. what I did. Appointed a successor. I told him I'm not coming back next year. You vote a new leader. They really vote, and that's it. The problem was I was so stuck in my bubble, in that really tight bubble, that I, I lost any, any relationship to the outside world. So when I retired, in my head, I was still a racist. I was still an anti-Semite. I was not that much of a Nazi anymore. I made differences there because I wanted to infiltrate society. And I knew with National Socialism, especially in Germany, it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Period. Germany does a great job uh, atoning, reflecting on the Holocaust in the past and making up for it, make sure that this is never happening again. So I knew that that won't work. Um, but since I had nothing else, I was still hanging around with them sometimes, drinking a beer, playing darts or whatever. But after a couple of months, I was aware I have to get away from them to get out of the influence. Yeah. Um, out of the influence. And we decided to move 100 miles away. The thing was, I made all my money in that movement. Like that happens. You live, you create a parallel society where you have your own company, you serve that movement, you sell that's your, your stuff to the. Yeah, that's my market. Yeah. Well, losing that, all of a sudden, we're on Section 8. Yeah. A family full of trouble coming from the background on Section 8, two weeks before Christmas, trying to find an apartment. Was it just you? It was me, my back then wife, and the two kids. <laughs> Okay. So I had three kids that were born at the time. And we found we found an apartment. We looked, it was a classified. We called it, and I heard the accent, Turkish immigrant. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was one of my enemies. I didn't want to move in. Um, I looked at my then wife and said, we want to do that. But we had no choice. Yeah, the place to it, was, it was the only, only one we could find. So we moved in. Uh, completely broke. We had nothing. And um, one of my business was computer-related. So the landlord, he lived downstairs in his apartment. We had the apartment upstairs. And he offered me work because his computer kept breaking. And he offered me to repair it and pay me. I didn't feel really comfortable with that either. I didn't want to go in this apartment. I didn't want to take his money, but I had to. I was desperate. Um, and that went on for a couple of months. At that time, I almost found another KKK group because, again, I was stuck in that for 17 years. It was all I had. Right. But I was hesitating. I didn't know what it was yet until one certain moment that really broke the ice, almost broke the hate. I was invited for dinner. And it was like, you know, if you talk about the kind of culture, you hear that they're very offended if you if you reject their offer of food or something. Sure. Yeah? And he invited me for dinner. And usually I would not have said yes. But after the six months, I felt more comfortable. And I was downstairs and it was just me with his family and very uncomfortable first. And started serving. And the um, appetizer was fish soup. That was, my, that was my reaction. I was, like, oh, I was like, what am I going to do? I heard they're super offended. If I tell them I don't want that, will he murder me in my bed? After all, that, that was the people that I thought that are invading the country and taking over. Right. They wanted to get rid of the Germans. 
of course he will murder him in my bed, you know? Or I don't know, grow fangs or blow me up, kick me out of his house, it's his. And I didn't want to find out. But I had to. I had to find out how offended he would be. Because he couldn't eat that but, soup. Yeah, my thing was, I thought, <laughs> I thought he's acting like the nice guy, but actually he's a Muslim terrorist. And I wanted to rip off his, his mask, off his face. And I thought, okay, this is, this is the time when I will find out. And I told him, Hemet, I do not like fish soup. And guess what happened? What happened? Nothing. His wife came, took the fish soup, brought the rest of the food and everything. It was fine. And I was sitting there so puzzled. I was like thrown off my track, you know. Yeah. He actually pulled off my mask. I was the bad guy at the table, not him. He was the nice guy and he was still a nice guy. Did you feel like you had an epiphany at that point? Yes. Because yeah. I, I kind of knew it all, all, all along, but that was just the, the moment. And I... It felt like all that hatred was laying in front of me in crumbs. And I had two options. Either I go and take those crumbs and put them together, back together to the loaf of hate that I used to nurture, or I analyze them. Yeah. Well, let's analyze them. And Germany has a great population of, of Turkish Muslims. So let's go out there and find out. See the exception? Still good in hiding or, I don't know, pretending? The other ones are probably terrorists, I thought, you know. You still had that thought. Yeah, yeah of course. And I needed to find out. And I realized over the years so that he was not the exception. Did he know that what your background was like? Um, at some point, yes. Not when he took us in, but later, yes. We yeah. never talked about it. It, it didn't matter. Because he, he just showed me something that I thought I didn't deserve. That was compassion. I wasn't ready to give that compassion to him, but he was ready to give it to me. Mm -hmm. Compassion, respect, unconditional love, no matter of the background. You never had that, did you? Up no. until that point? No, not as a child because my mom was busy fighting her demons. Yeah. Not in school, I was bullied. Then I felt like compassion in the far right movement, but there was just valuing me there. Then for society, I felt there was no compassion from society. Honestly, if you walk out of your office on Monday and walk out there and there's a guy standing down there with swastika tattooed on his neck, do you want to talk to him? <laughs> scare the hell out of me. So, no, right? Right, of course. So, and this, this is it. He may be gone out, out of the white supremacist movement for 20 years and you just don't know, but you're scared. Right. There's a lot of judgment, of course. Well, you're, you're scared of what you don't know. Right, exactly. So, yeah. and, and we knew that. Who are you going to talk to? And this is what I did for 10 years after I left the hate groups. I talked to only a couple people about my past. And even I had a long-term relationship. And I only told her I used to be a far-right skinhead. That's it. No details. Not that I was a leader. Because fear of rejection. Judgment. That people turn their backs on me and walk away. And mm -hmm. um, that, that was a problem. So what did you do from there? I mean, you're, you're here in America now. There's obviously a lot more to that story. But when, when did you start to try to turn it around and, and become an activist? So I moved to the U.S. 10 years later in 2012. And first I thought, you know, I'm, I'm entering the multicultural melting pot that's promoted, that you see in Hollywood movies, black cop, white cop, best friends, go to each other's houses, hang out. And then I moved to Memphis, Tennessee. 
of all places. Yeah. And it doesn't exist. It's like the chosen segregation. That's how it felt. And I was puzzled again. I didn't understand. So after a while, it became a little bit my mission to find out why that is and get in touch with the black community and just, just find out. And it had to do, uh, I still didn't talk to anybody in the U.S. about my past for the same reason, because I had a lot of rejection in Germany. When it came out, I was outed very brutally. I was not in control of that outing. And that happened in the USA too in 2015. A big newspaper had a story because they thought they had a scandal on their hands. Didn't work out for them. But I was scared when that article came out because fear of rejection. Were you scared of the people from the, the groups that you were a part no, of? No, I was afraid of the society of the rejection. Yeah. That who wants to deal with me when they find out that I used to be a KKK leader? They know me as the nice guy and all of a sudden, what? Turn their backs on you and, and walk away. You for a 180. And that was scary as hell. It was, I didn't want that. But I was outed. I was not in control. But it was actually good. I found out that this is not the case, especially here. America loves redemption. Germany does not, especially when it comes to Nazis. And there's a good reason for that. Sure. They're way more sensitive. Um, and I realized that, that redemption is here. And a lot of people started reaching out to me. And so I started a nonprofit organization trying to bring the black and the white community together, especially in Memphis, with a lot of projects. And then a lot of other people who wanted to leave extremist environments, especially hate groups, reached out to me because I was out there in the public. So I started talking to them. So at the time, I already made my peace with the Muslim community that I once hated and with the black community that I once hated, but not with the Jewish community. The thing is, I knew a couple of Jews, but... We did never talk about being Jewish, not being Jewish, my background, which is like business or that's it. And I think there was also fear because that was my, that was the biggest hate I had. And uh, I thought, well, if I tell a Jew that I used to be a Holocaust denier and an anti-Semite, they will turn their back on me for sure because of the Holocaust. And I, I would have understood and I was sure it will happen. And I remember 2018, uh, I was on a trip in L.A. Somebody told me to go to the, to the Museum of Tolerance, run by the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And that other person who invited me knew the senior researcher there, Rick Eaton. And we got a VIP tour, and just the two of us with Rick, and went through the different exhibits, and especially the Holocaust exhibit. Once I got out there, I was like, wow. I just realized, because I never went to a concentration camp. Back in the bad times, I didn't want to because I thought, I don't want to see a lie. That's right. what I believe. Later, I knew it was not a lie. The Holocaust happened. But I thought, I don't need to go there because now I know it, was, it happened. And then I went through that exhibit. The first time seeing all the stuff there, really. And I said, I need to work with the Jewish community. I, need, I haven't reflected on my past as a former anti-Semite, enough. Or at all. Yeah. That's when I started working with the Jewish community. And that was also a turning point. I started working with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. We started educating, especially college campuses, and go out and speak about it. Have you ever that felt the rejection? was also a huge for me. Have you ever felt the rejection that you were fearful of? Of all the people 
and all the minorities that I used to hate and that I met of all these communities, maybe once, twice, of thousands of people I have talked to. <laughs> and the most forgiving and people that have been the best to me and the most forgiving were the Jews. Why do you think I would, that is? I don't know. It's, I guess it's just the nature. I don't know. But I... That's interesting. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, part of the Simon Wiesenthal Center's mission is to educate. And by going around and, and like what we're doing right now and talking about your experience. But how do you, you've started other groups and you're trying to educate other people mm -hmm. who are currently in hate groups. What do you Not do? Or, yeah, what do you do to help them and, and also the people who've come out? So there are different methods and tactics what we can do. Yeah. Um, of course, you could contact people who are in hate groups, sit down with them and talk and show them compassion and respect, and they will open up. But that can be dangerous, so I don't recommend to everybody to do that. Right. Um, fortunately, there's many farmers like me out there today working in this environment, working either with the San Wiesenthal Center or independently of other groups, and that's known in the movement. So that helping hand that I didn't have when I had trouble getting out, that is there today. And that is known in the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement. So people know they can go online and type in how to get out and they will find one of those organizations or me on the Sam Wiesenthal Center and they can reach out. That makes it much easier. Because at some point people have those doubts. Mm -hmm. Finally they think, oh, now I can talk to somebody outside of the bubble and they will understand because they used to be in the bubble. There's even social media, other social media sites that are basically made for this, right? Right, correct. Yeah. Correct. And another one is also a lot of being proactive, going to college campuses. And very often I'm asked, aren't you preaching to the choir, talking to the <laughs> black community, to, to the Jewish community? I say, actually, yes and no. But let's say if, there, if there's an incident, yeah. let's say at a synagogue or Chabad house or whatever it is, like a swastika. And this is often when they call me and want me to speak to them. So there's different things we can do. And I know, and I dealt with the black community when churches were burning. There were churches burning just two years ago in Louisiana. People don't hear about that. So I talked to them. And people feel helpless. Jewish community after Pittsburgh, after Poway. And people feel helpless because you don't know what to do. And the, my message is then, don't feel helpless. Actually, the community, every community, or we all together as a community, have a great power because we can talk to these kids. If somebody puts a swastika outside of the synagogue, you don't know if that was an active KKK group or a 16-year-old or somebody who just saw a meme on, on Twitter or Instagram just yesterday, or you heard it from Uncle Baba or whatever. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. And it happens at schools too. What do you, what do you do? You you want you want to expel those kids from society, right? Or the person who did it. The thing is, even though it's right and needed that there's legal punishment, that's absolutely needed. Whoever did it needs to know this is a no go. You can't do it. It needs to be punished. If you follow up too much with a social punishment afterwards and put them in the box again. Yeah. You may have seen the swastika the first time in history class or has never heard of the Holocaust. All of a sudden, they did something, triggered it, put it on there. It doesn't make it better. That's not an excuse, just an explanation. But what happened to me was I was put in the box, Nazi. I didn't feel like one. 
Yeah. So the reasons why I told Holocaust jokes was not because I felt like an anti-Semite. So it was unintentional anti-Semitism. It was still anti-Semitism, but unintentional at the time. My intention, why I told them, was a different one. Right. And for the person we don't know, the person who puts the swastika there, what the intention was. If we write Nazi on that box and put them in there, there's two options what we can do. You and me can pull them out of the box and save that soul, or leave them in there, and the guys with the swastikas are pulling them out. What I would want to do. Want to get them, educate them to get them out of right. doing that. But the, the problem is, who wants to talk to somebody who looks like a Nazi? And, and that's that's the situation in. you got out there and you see somebody with a swastika. It right. scares you for a good reason. And this is really that's that's a hard part where we have to overcome that fear and also judgment. See, hey, we have to look behind that facade and realize there's a human being, and that human being had a valid reason why they put that swastika there. Not valid to you, not valid to me. But whatever their intention was, it felt real to them and valid. Real like a child thinks the monster under the bed is real. It's exactly the same thing. As a parent, you know it isn't. So where are some of the places that your organizations that you're working to, uh, to, to spread your message, and where can people find you online to be able to follow what you're doing? Online, either through the Simon Wiesenthal, SimonWiesenthal.com. Um, there's hate incidents that they have apps for that that you can download. Um, and you can find me on my website, tmgarrett.com. You can find me on social media, the handle tmgarrett on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Can reach out with other organizations like Parents for Peace, which is a network of parents who lost their children to radical groups. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you are doing some great work, and you know it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing what humanity is like, where we can come from the depths and change, and make great change, and and be you know you stand up now. But I wouldn't I wouldn't sit here without the compassion that I received from all these communities, and especially the Jewish community. Right. Well, thank you for what you're doing. Um, thank you, everybody here, for, for being here and listening tonight. And uh, just please continue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of Inside the Skev. I hope you found great meaning to it and learned a lot. And if you want to find out more about Skokie and Evanston, go to skevinson.com. I have all the latest episodes there, information about the community. And if you'd like to find a home in this community, I can help you that way too. I'm a real estate agent here at Dreamtown Realty, and there's a lot of great information on that website. So thanks again. Please subscribe and take care.